Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the Everything Astronomy Podcast. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Elena Levine, who's an award-winning entrepreneur, STEM career consultant, science journalist, professional speaker, and corporate comedian. In 2015, she wrote a book called Networking for Nerds, which was a top five book in, of 2015 by Physics Today. She's also the president of a company called Quantum Success Solutions, and so is a prolific speaker and writer on career development and professional advancement for engineers and scientists. She's delivered over 750 speeches and webinars, including 120 for clients all over the world. Anne has written over 425 articles in publications like Nature, Science, Scientific American, National Geographic News, Watch, and Smithsonian. She also writes Your Unicorn Career, a careers column for science careers about finding your professional bliss. She has also authored two online courses for Oxford University Press on career development and entrepreneurship, is a consultant, speaker, and writer for the Lindau Nobel Laureate Meetings, and has served as the event manager for the International Conference on Photonics. Lastly, she holds, well, maybe, and not exhaustively, she holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics and anthropology and a certificate, and a certificate in Middle Eastern studies from the University of Arizona, and she also studied at the American University in Cairo as a U.S. Department of Defense Board Fellow. Elena, thank you for uh, being on with us today. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for welcoming me. I'm so excited to speak with you. Absolutely. Awesome. And so I guess the first question we kind of wanted to ask you um, was, you know, how, how did you kind of develop from going from anthropology and math to becoming a science consultant and a keynote speaker? <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, thank you for asking me that. And I think it, it serves as a, I hope, an inspiration for all of us who have diverse and seemingly disparate or seemingly disconnected interests and how you right. can actually bring them all together, weave them together to create a career that brings you intellectual joy. So I have always been interested in four threads, I call them. Uh, they existed since I was uh, knee high to a grasshopper. And so I've always been interested in STEM. I've always been interested in uh, communications, writing and speaking. I've always been in the performing arts. I've been on the stage since I was five years old. I've always been a comedian in my school and amongst people that I'm interacting with, even in business situations. And I've always been called to commerce. I love, love, love every aspect of business. I even wore, brought a briefcase to the first day of kindergarten. So with all these four interests, I always thought that I'd have to pick one as my job and the rest would be on the back burner as hobbies, like many of us feel. And so I majored in my first love, science. And originally I was astronomy and physics major before I got stoosed by the dark side and got my degree in math. Don't tell anybody. And so, <laughs> And so I had this view in my mind that, okay, I'm going to become, after I switched my majors, I'm going to become a theoretical mathematician, and I'm going to work on topological questions of interest all day. And you and I both know a little bit about topology. It's essentially uh, what describes the shape of space, looking at coffee cups and donuts and trying to put equations to them. Sounds exciting, right? Well, for a nerd like me and you probably, it is exciting. So that's what I thought I had at my, in, my, uh, in, in the future for me for a career. But a couple of things happened that caused me to switch. One thing was that I realized as much as I love STEM, I don't actually enjoy doing the research in STEM. As a freshman, I did a NASA space grain internship in astrophysics. We looked at cosmological bodies, including quasars, and we looked at Lyman alpha clouds. And I, did, I enjoyed it, but I did not enjoy it enough to think, wow, I want to do this every minute of my day for the rest of my life. It was, there was no way. What I realized was that I enjoy the speaking and the writing. I enjoy the explaining. I enjoy the connection with non-specialist audiences, trying to entice them and convince them why they should invest resources in STEM, be it as a student to study STEM and go into a career in STEM or become a, a, a student, a kid, think about taking more STEM classes or organizations or companies investing money for students to do research and to do and to do uh, to teach and, and to take classes. So I could see in my transition as I moved forward in my schooling 
that what I really enjoyed was the communications and the business side of the science. And so fortunately, when I was graduating, I was working in the physics department and the physics department, I had been a member of the physics department, even though I had switched majors um, and I had been the president of the Society of Physics Students and I worked there. And it just happened that my boss in the physics department left her job as I was graduating from the University of Arizona. And the boss that I was working for was the director of communications. And so I had been doing science communications which is amazing because it solves all of my problems. It wove, into, it wove together all of those four threads. And I realized this was something I would like to do, that science communications allows me to engage in all the different things that bring me pleasure. And it's a job where somebody will pay me to do this. This was a gold mine in my brain. So when she left, I applied for her position. And even though I was fresh out of college, I was just graduating and I had very little experience because the department had knew me, he knew I would be an asset and he hired me. He took a chance, but he hired me. It's an important side point in that when you get to be known in communities, even if you don't have exactly the right qualifications, experience, or skills, if people know you as a value-added professional, they will invite you, they will engage you, they will hire you. So that's what got me started. I worked for my, a few years as director of communications for the physics department. Then I shifted to working for the dean of the College of Science where I was managing a master's program that combined science and business. And this was another pivot point for me because in this experience, I was giving a lot of workshops and speeches about my program, trying to communicate to industry why my students should get jobs in industry. Indeed, that was my charge. And I realized that, first of all, I really enjoyed speaking. That was where I could be my most authentic self. It allowed me to tap into my performing arts background, but it allowed me to share information that would be of value to the audience. And I loved that concept of having mm -hmm. that meaning, of having that impact. So that was one thing. The second thing I realized was that there was a specific gap that existed for STEM students at the undergraduate and the graduate level, even in postdoc positions, relating to career development. I mean, nowhere in any abstract algebra class did any teacher ever say, this is how you get a job, and these are the jobs that you can pursue, and this is how you negotiate a salary. It just wasn't discussed. And so I realized that I had knowledge about this, and I had the skills to be able to communicate this via speaking and writing I had been doing for years too, and that's when I realized I could start a business on this. And that's what we all have to do. We all have to become career entrepreneurs, look for gaps in systems that we can help fill, pain points in systems that we can help alleviate, walls in systems that are impeding innovation that we can knock down with our own unique skill set and abilities. When we do that, we can create our unicorn career. Mm. So I did this, it allowed me to build up my skills, it allowed me to build up my repertoire of services for clients. And when I left the University of Arizona in 2009, I've been full-time with my business ever since. <clears throat> and so what I think there's, um, I mean, it's very interesting to see how, you know, we're more and more encouraged, you know, when, when we hear, uh, for example, people like you speak about how we should essentially play VC with our own career. We have, you know, a lot of people are encouraging you to go find the next cool thing and do it and make it happen. And I know a lot of, you know, people who study science are always thinking, well, you know, should I go get a next degree? You know, do I need to get one master's two, maybe, you know, go do a PhD. But then when I have a PhD, you know, it's you, a lot of people still may think, oh, it's not over. I've got to go do a postdoc. I'm not good enough. Uh, you know, I, oh, I still need to become a professor. No one will trust me otherwise. Mm. Do you, how do you see that playing out in maybe now or in the future? Is our scientists more and more going to need to go do those extra degrees, go do those extra things, go jump through those extra hoops? Or is it possible to break through and do you think that's just an illusion? Do you mean for um, job that are non-academic jobs, non-research-based yes. jobs? Yeah, so I think it's a very important question and a timely one as well. So the way I think about educational uh, credentials, degrees, and even postdoc appointments is this. In general, for all of us, when we engage in a career, the goal is for us to have intellectual pleasure. 
So what I mean by that is I define success as a career that brings you joy, allows you to have impact in the way that you define it as being meaningful because everybody defines impact differently. A career that allows you to be aligned with your own values, goals, and mission and allows you to be your authentic self. So that's the way I define success. Notice I didn't put anything in there about money. Of course, you have to be paid. Absolutely, we're not joking about this. We absolutely have to be paid, but the career itself, the unicorn career, the blissful career is defined in my opinion by those things. So if we use that lens to look at this question about additional degrees and additional educational credentials, this is what I say to people. When you are deciding whether or not you want to get, let's say, a PhD in astronomy, mm. and you're thinking you might want to go and to be go into science communications or go into science policy or go work for a company, uh, maybe adjacent to some of the missions, maybe working for like an aerospace company that is one of the vendors or one of the contractors with NASA to build a particular piece of equipment. This is how you think about it. There's two metrics to decide whether or not you should actually do that degree. Number one, you have, to, you have to check and see whether or not that degree is needed, not wanted, but needed for the job path or the career path that you aim to be a part of. And through your networking, through building your network, you have, will have people that you can ask, you know, I see you work for NASA. I see that you're an engineer for NASA. Could you tell me a little bit about your background? Did you have a PhD? Did you get a master's in engineering? What was your educational journey like? So get the data. We are data collectors. We know how to collect data. We know how to mine data. And we know how to make informed decisions based on data. So we are gathering a lot of data. So that's the first thing. Do you need this degree? If the answer is yes, then we go to the second thing. We go to the second question. Do you love, love, love this subject so much that you will be doing it for the next two to five or six years and only that subject? Because we have to think realistically, if we're thinking about doing a master's with a thesis or a PhD, we're talking about years of research on an extremely, extremely narrow topic. Now, as much as I love black holes, and I do, I gotta say, what? I can study black holes for five years and not even just the extent of black holes, I would be studying one teeny tiny corner of black holes, one teeny tiny corner. That would not bring me intellectual pleasure. But if it brings you joy, if that's like cupcakes for your brain, oh my goodness, go for that. And then if you, if in fact, if you reverse the order of the questions, if you say that, for, ask that question first, and that brings you joy, and then you see whether or not you need that job, that uh, credential uh, later uh, for the job that, or the career path that you want, you know what? It doesn't matter whether the second question now, do you need it, matters because you were doing something that gave you impact, that allowed you to contribute in the way that is aligned with your authentic self. So I would never tell somebody, don't finish your master's or PhD, or don't definitely do not do a PhD. If somebody came to me and said, I really don't like doing research and I'm finishing up my master's, I really don't wanna do any more research, but do I have to do research if I wanna get job X? Mm -hmm. Then we'd go through the checklist in the first order. We go through the yeah. checklist in the first order. So that's how I think about it. And I think, I think we will still see um, traditionally uh, traditional careers like professorships and certain types of research, research scientist positions. I think we will still see them requiring a PhD. Um, however, many, many, many different types of careers are out there. And I want you to just be aware that if that's not the career for you, there are many others. And if you don't see the career that you want, you can potentially make it yourself like I did. Hmm. And um, so we, we thought that um, there's one, there's a, a huge topic out there, imposter syndrome, that affects a ton of scientists and, you know, is, and emerging or growing scientists or pre-scientists or young, young people, high schoolers, everyone. And, um, you know, we, we definitely know that it, as, as science undergrads, we know it exists. We've seen it happen. Um, do you, how sort of what do you think is it is imposter syndrome's impact in people's sort of search for career happiness? How do you think that people should get over it or you know try to mitigate it? Or do you think, for example, maybe universities should you know adopt something to make it make it happen, make it go away? Sort of what are your what are your thoughts on on the on the issue? 
So first of all, I want to just say, uh, how often do I feel like, do, how often do I feel like an imposter? How often do I feel like a fraud? I've had it, I experienced it 10 years ago. I experienced it last year. I experienced it when I woke up this morning and prepared for this podcast. So my point is, is that it doesn't have to be just per people who are early in their career. I have talked to Nobel laureates, CEOs who have imposter syndrome. And more recently, I was speaking to a colleague of mine who is running a multi-million dollar scientific program. He is one of the experts in the world on this topic. And he actually said to me as he was preparing for a presentation that he was reading the literature. And he said, I feel like a fraud. I don't feel like I know enough about this topic. The guy has literally written books about the topic and he feels like a fraud. So I want to say to your audience, guess what? We all feel like we're frauds at any given time. And I know your audience knows a little bit about imposter syndrome. It's the sense where we feel like we're an imposter and somebody's going to find out and unmask us. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to reveal us. And so what I would say to you is, first of all, I want to let you know that it is something I think about a lot, how to combat it, how to fight it, how to banish it from our brains. And I've even written about it. And you can even include that uh, link in your um, resources that you're going to be producing. It's an article for Science Magazine. It was how to, how to banish imposter syndrome. And your audience sure. can read it for free. So we'll how do I think? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, was, I just said we're going to link, link that. Um, yeah, yeah. So in that article, I actually give you a step-by-step -step process to get rid of imposter syndrome, but I want to tell you how I do it too. So to give your audience some ideas. So mm -hmm. the first thing is we have to, um, number one, recognize that imposter syndrome is, and also there's a, uh, and, and I say this uh, with my, the astronomy community in mind, there's a binary syndrome as well to that always is uh, in collaboration and orbiting with imposter syndrome. And that is what I call uncompetitiveness syndrome. So that's where we think we're not competitive enough for a job or a fellowship or whatnot, and we don't apply. So in both cases, in imposter syndrome and in competitiveness syndrome, what we're doing is we are taking actions that are detrimental to our career health or taking non-actions that are detrimental to our career health and to our mental health, our emotional health, and even our physical health. And so your self-care always has to be number one, especially your mental health. I would argue that your mental health has to be your number one priority. So the first thing on my list is number one, self-care, self-care, self-care. We are going to honor ourselves through this process. Number two, we're gonna recognize that since these, these issues, these syndromes, they do not are they are not happening in reality in the ether. They are actually a construct that we have created inside our brain. It's a complete fantasy of fake news. So we have to recognize that since it is fake, that we think we're fake, that we're not actually fake. That's not true. We can actually work around this because as scientists, we deal in truth and reality. And this is a fantasy that we have created. So let's get this fantasy out of our brain. The next thing we do to, to banish this is we have to start thinking about the emotions that the imposter syndrome is causing us. We do this in part, again, to honor ourselves and, and also to address our mental health to make sure that we are safe, but it also helps to give us strength when we are potentially combating these syndromes in the future. It allows us to create a guidepost in the sense that if I feel this type of anger, ah, maybe I'm feeling like I have an imposter syndrome. Ah, mm -hmm. this is something I can now solve. Mm -hmm. So it's like a feedback loop that we create for ourselves. The, the, uh, the emotions that you may feel when you think that somebody is going to find out that as you join graduate school that you don't know anything, that you're an imposter, those emotions could be sadness and frustration, anxiety, depression, uh, it could be anger, it could be a sense of, um, uh, you know, like dismissed, ashamed. Uh, you could even have some other types of emotions. Write those down, write those emotions down. We need to know what they are. It's very important. It also helps to clear it out of the system. Since we're dealing in truth, we have to remove the things that are opinions. The emotions we are feeling are facts, but the thing that we are feeling the emotion about is an opinion. It's a yeah. perceptional right. issue. The final thing I would say, and you can read the whole article to get more details, and this is my favorite 
part of the process to get rid of imposter syndrome is you get angry. You unleash your fury, but who do you unleash it on? Your brain. And you start screaming at your brain. And this is my favorite because I love to scream and I love to curse. I scream at my brain. How dare you speak to me brain like this? I'm Elena G. Levine. I worked hard to get here. I have intelligence. Mm-hmm. I have these skills. You will not disrespect me brain. And I curse in a very, very creative way. So really just unleash that fury because no brain has any right to ever speak to you like that at all. You are not an imposter. This is your moment. You do belong here. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it is. Um, we, we were thinking when we were preparing for this podcast and we were talking about imposter syndrome, we were, um, <clears throat> we were thinking that maybe an effect of it could be that is, is it trying to serve as an indication that perhaps you're embarking on the wrong career path? Because I think it's, you know, it's, it's somewhat reasonable to assume that if you're not feeling totally happy about something, sure, maybe you can fight it, but maybe you're fighting an uphill battle. Maybe the further you go along the, you know, and I mean, I, I know for a fact that people experience this when they're in high school, they may be right. pretty good at math and then they get to college and they're like, okay, at math. And then, you know, they probably get to grad school and they're like, oh no, there's all these people that they're super good at maths. Mm. Do you think imposter syndrome may be telling you you're sort of pursuing the wrong route or is, do, do you think it's a total myth and that, you know, we should fight it with all our, all our power and all our might? So I think that I'm glad you brought that up. And I think that's a very valid in point, And I think we should address that. So I want to, first of all, refer to Katie Mack. You know, Katie Mack, the astronomer, and you should interview her. Uh, she's written a recent book, I think called How It Ends. I can't recall the exact title, but it's about the end of the universe and how the universe may actually end. And I follow her on Twitter and she said something very, very important a few months ago. She said that just because you have to work hard doesn't mean you're not cut out for it. And I think about that because I came from a high school, I grew up in New Jersey and I came from a high school that was one of the best, it was the second best public high school in the state of New Jersey. Um, You know, I'd say about almost every, I'd say about maybe 75 to 80% of my classmates went to colleges. They all went to private Mm -hmm. schools. Many of them went to the University of Michigan. Um, You know, the vast majority of the people in the first, in in the top 20 went to Ivy League schools if their parents could afford it. I was in the top 20, my parents couldn't afford it. I went to the University of Arizona. And when I have, you know, I did high math in high school. I arrived right. in college and suddenly math was hard. <laughs> right, right. Right, and who hasn't had that? And the thing about mathematics that I found very interesting to me was that even though I found it very difficult and it wasn't easy for me, I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed the pleasures of finding things out as a mathematician in in school. Mm. So I wouldn't necessarily say that if you feel like you are working really, really hard and it's so difficult, and there's a secondary thing which you pointed out, which is you're comparing yourself to the other people around you, which is never a good idea. We can never measure ourselves to the people around us. And, And I wanna give you a quick story. When I was at the University of Arizona, I had, when I started in physics and astronomy, after I switched, I had a lot of my friends who continued in physics and astronomy. In fact, people I had actually done the freshman orientation with. So these were people that I became very close with uh, and knew from the beginning of their undergraduate journeys. And I remember being jealous of them that they were gonna, they knew they wanted to be in in astrophysics. So they did this program during the summer, then they did this fellowship, then they got into graduate school and then they became a professor. I was actually, I had this sense of envy that they knew what they wanted to do and they were able to to find that way to go forward and that it seemingly was quote unquote easy for them. And what a few years ago, about 10 years ago, I started to hear from some of these people who were not happy in their jobs and were now reaching out to me knowing that I'm a STEM career consultant, they were asking my counsel to help them find a joyous career. And I thought to myself, here were people who I thought had it figured out they had their entire lives written down and it was so easy for them. You know what, maybe it wasn't so easy and maybe they weren't actually, maybe it wasn't completely written down. So I would say that there's a couple of concepts that are, that are embedded in that very important question that you ask, 
One is the idea of working hard. And if, it's, if you're working hard, if it's still bringing you joy, I would say go for it. Use the tools and resources and the opportunities to improve your skills in that. Go see your professors during office hours. Take Coursera's to, to hone other skills to be more successful in solving those types of problems. Don't give up if this is something that you want to do. The second thing I would say is that do not measure yourself to against anybody who is adjacent or even above you. You can use people, by, by above, I mean in front of you career-wise. You can utilize people's careers as aspirational goals, but you should never ever be measuring because every one of us has a very unique lived experience. And that shapes how we view the world because as you can think about this, Every experience that I have going forward in time is giving me access points about the world that is then shaping how I make decisions of how I perceive the world and how I perceive myself in the world. And similarly, you have that as well, but we are not on the same path. So we are getting different information about ourselves and our un the universe and ourselves in the universe. And it's dynamic, it's changing. It's a complex system that changes every moment as we move forward in time. We cannot expect to present, excuse me, to compare ourselves to somebody who is also moving forward in time, but is getting different information and is a different person. So that's an important part. And it was an important part of my development to make sure that I stopped measuring myself. I still occasionally do it and I have to stop myself from doing that. It's not healthy for us to do that. And the final thing I would say about your point is, is it imposter syndrome? As far as imposter syndrome is concerned, what I would say is if you are working really, really hard and it feels like an uphill battle and you feel like a fraud, let's do some data analysis first before you, before you leave it, before you skip it, before you try something else. Is it that the problems themselves, you don't have the tools to be able to solve? Is it the concepts? Is it the connection, the connective tissue between the concepts and the, and the, and the, the tools and the technology and the equations? What is it that's actually impeding you being able to understand the concepts? These are the questions that you need to ask yourself before you decide to leave something. Don't leave something because you see other people doing things that look easy. Because you know what? The majority of people who look like they're doing something easy or are having an easy time, they're not having an easy time. Right. And you know what? I imagine that probably people have looked at me in my career and thought, wow, that's really easy. She's now a professional speaker. She speaks around the world. That's an easy thing to do. I've been doing this for 16 years now, and it is right. not easy. And I have to hustle every day to get clients and hustle right. every week to get to build relationships to make yeah. sure that I have an income. It's not easy, right. mm. but it is something I enjoy. Scientists, I think often... I think people imagine these scientists or, you know, people who work in sciences, you know, being very thought out, methodical, very calm, everything figured out, you know, laser focused, kind of like a duck swimming on the water, but underneath the water, you're paddling furiously and tons mm -hmm. of things are happening and you have no idea what's going on. Sure. And like to even add a, a, a maybe a different metaphor to that, uh, that's just kind of disturbing, is that above the water, this duck that seems to be paddling along just calm, cool, collective going forward is actually a robot. But the robot is actually run by a human underwater that is trying to figure out how to breathe, how to move forward, where to go, where to find food, what to do, how to do this, how to get a grant. We are all humans in this process. So yeah. even Nobel yeah. laureates are having trouble moving forward. I mean, one of my favorite stories about a Nobel laureate uh, is uh, Danny Schachman. Uh, who's, uh, he got, I believe it was the 2011 Nobel Prize for a certain type of, and I'll, I, maybe you can look this up for me, um, for mm. a certain, discovering a certain type of crystalline structure. And he was working on this research like 20, 30 years ago. I don't remember exactly when. And he went in and he told his boss, I found this new uh, crystalline structure. And the boss said, get your stuff, get out of here. That's not true. You're a fake that's not, you're, you're out of your mind, kicked him out. And not only that, but then Linus Pauling, the famous chemist, publicly maligned Schechtman's work for years and years and years saying it was crazy, it was nuts. It, it, didn't, it wasn't in, based in reality. I mean, talk about going up an uphill battle. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Nobel Prize in 2011. So, I mean, my gosh, this, the, I, I think of that story all the time, anytime I have an uphill battle or anytime I'm trying to convince somebody that what I'm doing is 
something important and it's important to me to be able to do it. And it's important to me to be able to convince them sometimes. Although honestly, maybe it's not that important to convince others that what I'm doing is important. Only it's important. It's only important to me. Mm -hmm. And one thing I, I like being in the position where you are, obviously, you know, you've talked to, you know, hundreds, probably even tens of thousands of different people that have wanted to go into industry or are pursuing some type of career, whether, you know, it's academia, industry, something else. Um, have you noticed any trends as to kind of where they're at in their career, what characteristics that um, these people may be more susceptible to burnout or imposter syndrome more so than others, or is it pretty even? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you mean people who are in industry, do they have imposter syndrome more than people in academia? Yeah, so like if do undergrads or graduates or professors um, tend to experience it more than one another? Are there any like characteristics or specific fields that may experience it more so than others? So I would say that every field has, has people who have imposter syndrome. And I would probably guess that almost every person, honestly, I mean, I haven't done the research. I don't have the data, but this would be a guess. Knowing human, human behavior and human psychology that almost every person on the earth has probably felt like a fraud that is going to be revealed as a fraud at some point in their lives, if not many times in their lives. I wouldn't say it's, it's, uh, it's just for people in academia or just for people in, in industry. I'd say it knows no bounds. It's in pe for people in any sector, any region of the world, any type of field, subfield, and any type of profession. But I would say, and this is something I think you point out, is that the the milestone points when I'm going into undergrad and doing my first research project, when I'm applying for my graduate work, graduate school, when I go into graduate school, when I have to pick a thesis advisor, when I'm finishing up my thesis, when I'm going on the job market and applying for postdoc jobs or research or jobs in industry. In other words, all these milestone parts moments where there's going to be a pivot is often where the imposter syndrome and the incompetitiveness syndrome is magnified. So I would say as you are engaging in these pivots, in these milestone points, be more aware that you may experience it here. And then you can put that process in place that I've described in part to make sure that it doesn't impact your success and your ability to move forward. Yeah, and I mean, scientists are such a, I, I find science so fascinating because I know for a fact that there's so much different stuff going on in science. There's so many different personalities. You know, I think in movies and, you know, probably in real life, everyone assumes that people who are good at maths have a, you know, one particular temperament and are very calm and really organized and all of that. Whereas I've been to class and I know for a fact that that's not true. Why do you think scientists are, or what do you think is the reason that scientists are stereotyped this way? Because as far as I can tell, you know, most, most professional scientists I've met are pretty cool and interesting people. And, you know, there's no reason to think that they're, you know, total nerds or not cool or uninteresting or boring. So why do you think scientists get stereotyped that way? I think that's a really interesting question. I appreciate you asking that. So first of all, let's think about, I'll think about myself for a second. I call myself a nerd and I feel that I am a nerd. But my boyfriend makes fun of me and says, you're not a nerd. You're interested in fashion. You're interested in performing arts and comedy. You do X, you do Y, you do Z. I mean, you're a runner. You're not a nerd. I, I'm, I am a nerd. Look, I am telling myself, I would tell myself, I am a nerd. I am a proud nerd. I have the glasses to prove it. No, just kidding. I do have the <laughs> um, But my point is, is that, yes, we're all humans. So we have so many different experiences. We are multifaceted as individuals. And I think that that's what helps make us stronger at the problem solving that we want to do is for our profession. Uh, I mentioned the running. I mean, as a runner, it actually helps me when I run to solve problems. And I've even used, used running as a metaphor for career success. I've even written about that for Physics Today magazine. So I think going back to this idea of why are scientists stereotyped in this negative way? I think part of it is this public perception of science and public perception of scientists. See, I don't think that the general public understands that when they hold their cell phone, which they consider to be so, so important, perhaps the most important piece of technology or tool, let's say, that they use every single day, that there is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and let's say even maybe even thousands of scientists who have worked on this research that led to this phone and, and thousands and thousands of engineers who have come up 
with innovations that have led to this phone. They just do not make that connection. So a lot of people who are not in STEM or not in academia may think science doesn't relate to me. I'm not a scientist. What has algebra ever done for me? And you know what, when I think about that question, I think about the fact that my proofs class, which I had to take as a mathematics major, right? If this, mm -hmm. then that, if that, then this, is the absolutely most important class I've ever taken of any class because it taught me to think. And it allows me to solve problems as a comedian because it allows me to start planning out what I'm gonna say. If somebody says this, if I, excuse me, if I say this and nobody laughs, what do I do? If I let right. somebody, if I tell a joke and I improvise and they do this, do I do that? All comes from the mathematical training. So I think going back to the question is there's this perception that there's this wall that exists between science and scientists and engineers and me as a typical person in, the, in, the, in society. And I think we as scientists, the way we can combat that is we can start to, we already start to understand it, but we can invest more resources systematically, individually, institutionally in making sure that scientists are communicating their work to the public in a way that the public can understand and appreciate. And when we hear about organizations like the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University and other institutions, and I was just talking to um, one of the leaders at Sierra, which is, and I forgot the, the name of the, the, uh, the acronym, but it's, well, I think it's C-I-A or E-R-A. It's a center for investigations in astrophysics at Northwestern University where they are trying to engage astronomers and astrophysicists with speech pathologists, data scientists, mm -hmm chemists. They're trying to create an interdisciplinary core collaboration to allow all these fields to benefit from each other. And I thought that was such a wonderful, smart idea. When we do, when we take actions to invest in these types of resources, we are helping the public understand that astronomy is everywhere, that astronomy affects me every day, that climate change is something that I touch and Im impact and influence every day. And that's an important part, I think, of being a scientist. And I, I think we are, we are at the cusp of seeing more and more scientific programs ensure that their students and their postdocs have this communicating science to the public curriculum woven in. We're not there yet, but I, my hope and my goal is in the future, perhaps in less than 10 years, every single graduate program and every single undergraduate program in STEM fields will have a requirement of a communicating science to the public course where students and, and postdocs too perhaps learn about how to do this so it becomes fundamental in their thinking. Yeah and I mean as with every stereotype obviously there's probably some elements of truths. What do you think are some of the most striking feature of scientists when you think of them as a whole? Do you, do you think they're typically very temp you know people with a very calm temper who are able to sit down and think about things for a lot? Or have you noticed no trends? Are there emerging trends? You know, has have some features dominated at one point and gone away? What What's your feeling about the scientific community at large? I think the scientific community at large, and this goes beyond astronomy, this goes to any STEM field, right. is just like all of society on the planet, everybody is completely different. So whereas some people can solve problems in a very scatterbrained way and their office is a total mess and you don't understand, you as an outsider don't understand how they're able to organize themselves, but they are able to do so. Or some people are super, super neat and some people work, take really long to solve a problem versus a short time problem. Everybody is different. But there is one thing that is exactly the same in every single scientist, actually two things. One is that you are problem solvers. Your job, your passion, your profession, your existence is dedicated to solving problems. And the second part of that is solving problems that uncover information about the universe. Those are the only two things that are exactly the same in every single scientist and engineer or science educated professional, I would say, around the world. Other than that, we're all different and let's celebrate that diversity. Yeah. And um, I, I thought that um, it's very, it's very interesting to see that, you know, a lot of, and a lot of scientists are rightly, you know, worried about this, you know, what am I going to do for a career? Because it is a really daunting thing and you better get it right at some point. And but if, if you flip, you know, that, that around and you look at it from the lens of someone who's a non-scientist, you know, someone who may have studied, say, literature in college, have you, do you see many people, you know, 
having talked to many, many scientists by now, do you see people who, instead of doing maths at a high level from a pretty young age and who kept that going, who instead are really interested by something else, maybe theater, politics, whatever, and then who later on in their lives, maybe say in their mid-20s, you know, when they're, well, you know, some way out of college at least, decide, well, you know, I, I really... I'm interested in this physics or this science thing. I'm get, I'm going to go back and try to get into it. Is that a is that a viable option for many people, or do you think the door shuts if you don't do STEM at some point early enough? Well, so I don't think the door shuts, but I think it's an interesting idea. And the idea is this: I will honor myself. I will serve myself and put myself first in a self care with self care. Uh, and I say that uh, in the sense that. I wanna make sure that I have a ha happy existence on this planet while I'm still alive and that I'm able to have the impact and the meaning that I want. And if it means that after studying literature or poli-sci or um, any sort of humanities or whatever, or maybe not even going to college, at some point later in your life, you realize, wait a second, no, this is not for me. I would be happy if I was studying astronomy. I would be happy if I could move forward into an astronomy career, then, there is never any reason for you not to go back. Of course, you have to get things in place. You have to make sure your finances are right. You have to plan it out so that you can financially and even from a, from a family perspective, be able to accomplish it. But if this is your dream, go for it. Absolutely. And I, one of my closest friends in college was somebody who went back to school in her early 40s so, and to study physics and ended up uh, continuing with that, got her degree in physics. What I would say is that although there is ageism and there absolutely is ageism uh, and it's worse, particularly for women and underrepresented minorities and minoritized populations in STEM, not gonna make, uh, uh, not gonna uh, fool around with that. That's actually happening. Right. What I would say is, is that instead of thinking about the career and I, it is important to think about it, Think about the process that you're going to take to get to the career. So to get to become an astronomer or to get to work in an astronomical ecosystem where you're working with astronomers on astronomy related projects. At this point in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, if you're going back to school, yes, you have to be realistic about that. But will you enjoy the process of getting there? Will you enjoy the research, the classes? Will you enjoy interacting with people in the field? Will you enjoy doing internships? Will you enjoy networking? with colleagues and learning about the different missions, if the process is gonna bring you joy, then there's never any reason not to do it. There's not a reason to do it. It's something I think about, this is kind of a similar uh, scenario. Uh, this is something that Oprah had said years ago, Oprah Winfrey, she said this years ago. I forgot who she was interviewing, but she said, do you wanna be an actor or do you wanna be a famous actor? In other words, do you want to act, even if it means that you are acting in a community theater in the middle of nowhere and there's two people in the audience? Or do you want to be a celebrity and you have to decide which one it is? Now, for me, I want to be a speaker and I don't right. care if I'm speaking to one person. And sometimes in my audiences, for whatever reason, I have one person in my audience. And that's okay with me because I am enjoying the process of delivering that value, of solving that problem for that audience member at that moment. And it's an even bigger challenge. And I like that challenge. And so you have to decide for yourself, do you want to be an astronomer, a successful, excuse me, not, let's not use the word successful, but uh, an astronomer who is working for NASA as the head of NASA, and you're mm -hmm. starting out at age 45 to go back to school. Is that possible? Yes, is it possible? Is it probable? Chances are it's not going to be probable, but you have to be realistic. However, will you enjoy all the pieces that you're looking to do en route to that goal? That's what you need to be looking at. Yeah. And I mean, the, the age question is, I think, so fascinating with science because science, we have seen incredible science come out of really young people. Mm -hmm. And that and that trend seems still totally mysterious and elusive to me because when you know Hamilton discovered quaternions when he was I think 18 um I think that uh, uh and for example he, Hamiltonian mechanics I think he wrote that when he was 20 and he became a professor I think at 21 or I'm, yeah. an incredibly young <laughs> yeah. good, luck. good luck to all of us <laughs> undergrad with where then whoa you know this guy started out with us and now he's a you know, a, a full-time professor, and he may be one of the most celebrated physicists ever, you know, 
does it still and you know nowadays we have we've discovered so much more stuff you know just in terms of material you know even if you're the same amount of smart as maybe hamilton was it would take you a longer time to get through this much you know the the extra material that we've now learned but we still see scientists do incredible things at a really young age and we also see yeah sorry we see uh scientists do incredible things at a young age does it make sense to still keep thinking that, you know, 22, we can expect uh, someone who has a bachelor's degree to be a modern day scientist? Or should we instead say, okay, you know what, maybe now that we're further developed, it may it would make sense to, you know, wait a couple extra years before we consider someone a, a more mature scientist. So it sounds like you're looking at it from both an internal perspective, like why can't I move forward or faster forward, forward more fast? I'm 22. I should have my Nobel Prize right now. Yeah. But I mean, you're also looking at it from the outside, like why, like should should 22 year olds, for example, be more, I don't know what more advanced in their career at that point? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. So the way I would think about this is this. Um, when I graduated from the University of Arizona at age 22 and I got that first job, I was thankful that I had that job because I had no idea what I was gonna do with my life. And I started measuring myself to some of my friends. In fact, I remember two of my friends went to the University of Michigan and they were graduating from the University of Michigan at the same time. And this was the late 90s. And yeah, as much as I look like it's, I was born in the 1690s. This is the 1990s we're talking about, just to clarify. Uh, 90s, as you know, dot com and then dot bomb. But in the middle yeah. of this, I had two uh, school friends who from the University of Michigan who went on to, to form a very, very successful dot com company in the 90s. And I remember sitting there and my job in the physics department at the University of Arizona was like writing and editing a newsletter and like giving tours to kids and like, you know, writing a press release. And I was like, I am having no impact. Here's somebody who's having global impact and I wanna have global impact and I'm not having that. What I didn't realize is that the work that I was doing at that moment was not only having impact, but it was setting me up for a future career where I'd have more meaningful impact Meaning, meaning that it would be meaning that I describe and define as mm -hmm. being impactful to me. So I would say that we, again, have to stop measuring ourselves and stop being in a rush or thinking that we have to be in a rush to identify what our career path or our, job, our jobs will be. Because again, going back to that metaphor is as we go forward in time, we are engaging different people in this system. This, if you think of it as a complex system, we are engaging different people in the system through our networks who are giving us what I call extrinsic data. They're giving us information about career paths and organizations and fields and uh, regions of the world where we might want to work or collaborate. It's changing us as we move forward in that complex system. And so the more data that we gather extrinsically about the ecosystems that we want to work in, the more it allows us to actually gather intrinsic data about ourselves, about our intelligence, about our skills, the problems we've solved and so forth. So the way I would think about this is instead of comparing yourself, start thinking about, first of all, the reality is, is that most people graduate in their first job does absolutely not define all of the jobs and all the careers and all the professions that you will have. I've seen data that says that people change careers, not just jobs, but careers mm -hmm. up to seven times in their lives. I'm on like career seven now. So who knows what I'm going to be mm -hmm. doing in five years. <laughs> and I have to be aware of that. I have to not be afraid of that because what I'm going to do right. to move forward and to be, build my own confidence is I'm going to solve problems that are of interest to me now with my collaborators while always keeping my eyes open to new opportunities to solve problems in new realms and on higher playing fields. And so don't, don't, don't measure yourself. Do not measure yourself. And just because this person got a Nobel prize at 22 or this person hundred years ago became or 50 years ago or whatever, or even last year became a, a, a full professor at age 23, you are not behind. You are on your own road. Yeah. Which is, and I mean, it, it's, I think I think personally that it's it's incredible to see that you know some people have had an incredible insight 
into something pretty complicated, admittedly, but some people have an incredible insight when they're 20 and some people keep going and have it when they're 60 or, you know, some are really very, very, you know, old um, and, 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 and they do incredible things in science. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you just brought to mind what happened exactly with me. So I'm, I am 46 years old and I'm 46 and fabulous. And if you had told me when I graduated, uh, you know, in 1996, that you could be a professional speaker and people would pay you to give speeches about career development with scientists and also pay to hear your ridiculously corny, nerdy jokes. I would never even thought that was possible. Like it just didn't even occur to me. That was not even in my universe of thinking. But because I was moving forward in time and interacting with people, I began to see that this was a possibility. So yes, there is always possibilities, but you have to keep your eyes open for them. So you, like, throughout this entire conversation, you've kind of mentioned like, you know, if, if you're happy with the, the process and path that you're taking, you should follow it. Um, but a lot of schools that I've kind of noticed, like, I'm, I'm not saying this is a bad thing either, but they like to, they like to, you know, pursue well-roundedness and, you know, for graduation requirements, you know, you have to take humanities and social sciences. Um, which is good because like you mentioned, it, it helps with like your public speaking skills and your writing skills. Um, so, you know, if you do end up pursuing STEM, you can, you know, publish those essays and those, um, those research writings so that other people can like understand them. Um, but I kind of want to know your thoughts on like Elon Musk's new school where um, it's not necessarily required to have well-roundedness where you can just focus on the topics that you're good at. Um, how, how would you think those, the people who would go through Elon Musk's new school where, you know, you can focus on one thing and one thing only if you'd like. Um, how do you think that will kind of affect the, the industry and the career field? Is, is that necessarily a good thing or? So I am not familiar with his new school, so I wouldn't be able to comment directly, but I would say if there is a, and you're talking undergraduate? Yeah. Okay. I would say that if there is an undergraduate school that does not require you to engage other parts of your brain, train other parts of your brain or speak to people who are diversified from you, that that could potentially be detrimental to you in terms of your career health and also even in terms of your own emotional health too. And the reason is, is because every time I speak to somebody who is working on something different from me, I gain insight to help me be a better, stronger person myself. So yes, I appreciate that you may want to focus exclusively on X and mm -hmm. I, give you the best. And I think that that's wonderful. I would encourage you also to take those humanities, those history classes. I took a linguistics class in my, in my, uh, my undergraduate years that was very enjoyable. Some of these classes, not the subject, but the, the way the thought process worked, the way I was trained to think still touch me today. The way I, the, the possibility of interacting with people and who are not working on the same thing gave me strength to solve my problems in my field today better than I would have if I didn't have those experiences. And let me give you a quick example. My uncle was a genius. I mean, literally that's how his brain was hardwired. So he's like one of those people who like just immediately knew what he was gonna go into. He went to MIT undergrad, PhD, and I believe applied uh, mathematics at Harvard. And then he uh, formed a very successful software technology company. So my uncle, the genius nerd, and he truly was a nerd, would go out in the morning when the garbage men were picking up the trash and he would ask the garbage men about what they were doing. Why are you doing it this way? What are the, how do the hydraulics on the truck work? Why is the truck moving this way and that way? How did you design the route? What are the cans? What's the material that the cans are made out of? Why this, how this, one that? Was my uncle, the genius nerd, interested in transitioning into the trash trade? Yeah. No. But he knew that when you engage somebody who is a master at their craft and you engage in that thought process, the thinking, to think about that other craft, you gain valuable insight, impact, in perhaps even invaluable insight in your own mind that can help you with your craft to be even more successful. And the way I like to think about that is just, it's so, so relevant to make sure that you are studying so many different things. I'm not saying that you take 
55 different classes of, and pursue 55 different majors. No, absolutely right. not. You have to become an expert. So once you decide that you want to major in astronomy, go for it. But it wouldn't hurt you to take additional classes in performing arts or in, uh, in politics and, and uh, society or in business. Those will all benefit you as an astronomer. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the successful way and the only way to become as an astronomer is to ignore every other piece of human knowledge. That is a mistake. Yeah, um, def I mean, definitely. I think right. a, a cool part of being a scientist is to get to think about sort of what the human, it sounds a bit cliche, but what the human experience is. Because it's it's crazy when you think when when you actually think about some of the things that we completely take for granted, how much design and trial and error went into designing things. You know, it's unbelievable when you think how our language came to be that those were cave people who were basically attempting to communicate more efficiently, yeah. and now we have this enormous hubbub of language which somehow makes sense to so many people and is so natural. And it makes so much sense that, you know, we drive the way that we do. But a hundred years ago, I'm sure that when people got to an intersection, they were thinking, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to crash into this other person. Yes. Mm. And I would say when you get to that intersection, and this goes back to your question about the early, like, what do I do when I'm graduating, right? Mm. And this idea that your first job does not determine all of your jobs. You will have to jump, right? You, at some point you do have to jump. You need an income. So you will have to pick a job. You will have to pick a career. But what I want to say is that your job in that job and in that career is to continue taking data. Data about yourself and how you respond to the types of problems you're solving here, how you interact with your with this organization, with the organizational, organizational culture. Um, how do you, do you enjoy this? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Does, does it? do you look forward to going to work or going to Zoom every day or or is it every morning do you wake up, oh my God, this nightmare and <laughs> this nightmare has begun again. So you're taking data, especially in those first years. And if you decide that this particular path is not for you, you can shift into something else. It's totally fine. And never, ever, ever say to yourself, I am a failure because I didn't do what other people did in this path, or I pursued this career and now I'm shifting to another career, or I got this major and now I'm not pursuing graduate work or pursuing a career in this major. No, you're not a failure. You're a success because you identified that this community or this career path is not for you. That's where you will not be successful. That's where you will not thrive and you're looking for other options and other opportunities for you. That's the mark of a success. Mm. It's not a failure if you choose to do something else with your life. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's so many interesting things that exist out there. I was, we were, when we were preparing for this, for the episode, we were thinking that under, that, you know, undergrad scientists have a whole bunch of things they have to do, but mostly it's making sure that they do, that they take their classes, get through the problem sets, do the readings and things like that. If you could like tell on undergrad scientists as a whole, if you could give them one piece of advice to sort of, I don't know, set them up, ground them, do better in their exams, anything, what, what would that be? Thank you for that great question. I would, the, the piece of advice I would give is to divert, to pursue other interests in college. So in, as an undergraduate in particular, this is a time for you to experiment, taste, and do, uh, and I use those words a lot, meaning that you get a chance, this is your first opportunity in a scholarly organization, you should take advantage of the many resources that your university has to learn new skills, to develop more relationships that are across, that are beyond astronomy or beyond physics, and to uh, engage in leadership opportunities. So one of my, and also to, to just to explore other corners of your mind. So two of my absolutely favorite experiences as an undergraduate, one of them was um, I worked in, as a, I, I needed a job. I got a job in the student union and the basement of the student union was the billiards hall. So my job was giving out balls and taking people's money for those balls while they played billiards and making sure people didn't get into fights while they were waiting online for tables. 
And my job was also cleaning the table. So for a wonderful sum of $4.20 an hour, that's what my job was. That was probably the best job that I had as an undergraduate. It was phenomenal. And that job had nothing to do with astronomy. It had nothing to do with mathematics or did it. In that job, I started that job not knowing anything about billiards. I had no idea what the cue was called or how to hold it or what side of the table do you rack the balls. I had no idea. And in that job, I started playing against people who worked there who were very good. I learned from them. And about eight months later, I competed in a billiards tournament and I took third place. And I couldn't believe it. Like, how did I go from nothing to being a billiards champion? And a year and a half later, I took first place, by the way. My, my name was Lady Dynamite. That was my, my favorite name. That taught me that it, it was such a valuable experience to me and it had nothing to do with mathematics, but it, is, but it was useful because it helped to balance me studying mathematics. And the other really wonderful experience I had was I pursued leadership opportunities everywhere. I was named treasurer of the astronomy club my freshman year, and I worked with the Society of Physics students and became the president of that in my final year. And I love that. And by the way, being the president of the Society of Physics students got me my first job offer at Intel mm-hmm. Corporation. So and- do not just limit yourself to astronomy. Pursue other things that are of interest to you, because this is especially the time where you get an opportunity to experiment and try things and taste things. Right. And one last question before we we kind of wrap up this episode. Um, How how would you suggest presenting yourself when you're interested in taking any of these positions? Because obviously, I think this is going to be relevant for applying to grad schools, getting PhDs, any job, undergraduate research, maybe even going to college. What is the best way to present yourself and the experiences and the skill set you have to um, these opportunities so you can kind of, you know, boost your chances of getting these opportunities. So whatever the opportunity is, whether it is a job or graduate school, the first thing you want to make sure you're clarifying is that you are a problem solver. They're hiring you to solve problems. Even if you're applying to my graduate school, I'm expecting that you will solve problems and that you will even do something for my graduate program. You will succeed. You will do uh, excellent research, which will bring uh, reputational benefits to my department. So you want to be thinking about what problems can you solve for me? So that's the first thing. The second thing I would think about is to think about all of these different experiences that you've had working in your family's business, working in retail, being a leader in this club, uh, being uh, the, the head, the person who created the kayaking club for your university, um, being the person who uh, did the NASA uh, internship or the person who got a chance to go to this um, conference and give a poster, whatever the lived experiences that you've had, you want to be thinking about how that has strengthened you to be able to, again, solve problems for this organization. So rather than throwing these things under the rug and not mentioning that you're the leader or the president of the kayaking club, why not reference that? That as the president and the founder of the University of Michigan Kayaking Club, I was able to market the program, market this club. We attracted 100 new members within the first two years. We organized a conference for uh, 50 people uh, devoted to uh, kayaking techniques and technologies. We took people on trips. I raised money. I developed relationships with sponsors. I negotiated for contracts. All of these skills helped me to be stronger in thinking about problem solving and being an effective member of a team when I'm doing astronomy. So we're going to package what we've done over here using the language over here. We're going to package what we've done over here to make it clear that this has strengthened us and made us more uh, agile as problem solvers to pro- solve problems over here. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah. And, then, I mean, and I the- would say there's a third point too, and that is that the job, since, since the job search process is never about what you, the job seeker, can get from me, the decision maker, it's what you can do for mm-hmm. me. And you're always thinking about what you can do to add value. Part of the value that you're going to add is to show me why you are so excited to be a part of my organization. So that means you have to customize every single output that you have, your applications, your job applications, your research applications, your grad school applications, your grant applications. Let me know what is special about my department. Do I have a particular observatory that you want to be a part of? Do we have a team that focuses on gamma ray bursts that you want to be a part of because you think gamma ray bursts are so cool and interesting? And why 
Why do you think that? How are you going to contribute to this team? Why will this be the place where you will be able to thrive, where you can grow your career? So talk to me about why you want me and be specific. So that's another tip. Yeah, and that definitely a very good one. We thank you so much for talking to us about probably only a very small part of what, you know, the scientific career world is like, or the, just the scientific world at large is, because we know, and this is why we started this podcast and why we wanted to talk to interesting guests like you. We know that science is so much more than just, oh, some unimportant thing was discovered by someone who's really smart, who read many books. We know that it's so much cooler than that. And we know that right. science has not only a great diversity within the actual material that it's studying, but the people that actually study that material. And it was great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was my privilege and my honor. I'm really appreciative that you invited me to do this. I'd like to invite the audience to join me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is Elena G. Levine. Mm -hmm. That's the primary way that I send out free career planning resources like invitations mm -hmm. to webinars and articles. And you're also welcome to follow me on Twitter. And that also is at Elena G. Levine. And we'll make sure to put both of those in the descriptions of both the, the YouTube and the Spotify episodes as well. So fabulous. Awesome. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. This is Michael. This is Sam. This is Tommy. And this is Joe. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure to leave a review. All of the show notes can be found either in the description below or on our website. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with more Everything Astronomy.